Good morning, everyone. My name is Annalisa Sovereigns-Reed, and I am the uh, presenter of this lecture today from Accessible Art History, my digital humanities project. Um, we'll get started in just a few minutes here, so I wanted to just say welcome and thank you for attending my lecture today. I am recording this for um, some people that were interested in seeing it, um, but they are not in a place where the Pacific uh, time zone will work for them so that I can post it on my YouTube channel later this weekend. Um, so the screen will be shared, so you will not be on video, but if you do ask a question, please note that you, uh, your voice will be heard. Um, if you're not comfortable with that, you are more than welcome to put it in the chat and I will just read it um, out loud. We'll get started in a few minutes, gonna let uh, people pop on um, in a second. So thank you again for attending and I look forward to sharing with you about five of my personal favorite black artists for Black History Month. All right, so I think we're gonna go ahead and get started. Uh, people will continue to pop in and that is totally all right. Um, 
I will reintroduce myself for those of you who have just joined us. My name is Annalisa Sovereigns-Reed, and I am the founder of Accessible Art History, um, and it is my digital humanities project. And so I'm really excited to be sharing five of my personal favorite Black artists with you today in honor of Black History Month here in the United States. Um, this talk is really meant to bring awareness to um, artists from this group that are generally outside of the traditional predominantly white um, Western canon. Of course, in recent years, you know, and I'd say the past 20 years, there has been an increased interest in um, study of Black artists. But again, I think it's really important to share their work, especially in honor of Black History Month. Um, these are only five of my favorites. There are so many more um, out there to explore, and you'll see some of them in the additional resources that I posted on the website in the chat. Um, and I'm thrilled that you are joining me today for it. So just a quick little about me for those of you who are new to accessible art history. Uh, there's me, a picture of, of me. Uh, my name is Annalisa Sovereigns-Reed. I have a master's in secondary education. I founded Accessible Art History in the summer of 2019 as really just a passion project. I love art history. Um, I have a degree in it from the University of Washington. And um, I wanted to share my, my knowledge and kind of nerd out with other people on the internet about art history. And it's kind of evolved into this really fun uh, digital humanities project where I share lectures, YouTube videos, Instagram posts, blogs, like a little bit of everything, podcasts even, um, just because I want to share how interesting art is, how fun it is, and how it really just connects all of humanity together. Um, because it's art is the story of us. It's the story of people, how we've all been driven to create since really the earliest amount of time. And just a quick note, this is being recorded. Um, I'm only doing screen share. Your face, if you have your camera on, will not be shown. Um, and if you are uncomfortable with that accuracy and question with, when you're unmuted, uh, feel free to put it in the chat and I will just read it for you. So uh, this is the, let's see, fourth monthly lecture I've done. I did two in December, so it's only been the past couple of months. The others can be found on my YouTube channel, which is linked in the website. Um, and I plan to do these about once a month just because I love talking about art history and I think it's a great way to connect with people about the subjects. All right, so let's dive into artist number one now that we got all that admin stuff out of the way. This is my personal favorite, I am biased, um, but Edmonia Lewis is one of my favorite artists of all time. And she is definitely my favorite on the list of ones I'm sharing with you today. She was born in the 1840s. Um, she's not sure, she was not sure about her birth year. Uh, records back then for really a lot of people were pretty spotty. Um, so she personally chose July 4th as her birthday. And she gave a few dates throughout um, her life, but somewhere in the mid-1840s is generally accepted as her birth year. She lived until 1907, um, and she was a neoclassical sculptor. So she was born um, in Greenbush, New York, but she actually spent a lot of her childhood um, in New Jersey and the Niagara Falls area. Her mother, Catherine Lewis, was of mixed race descent. So she was um, part African-American and part Mississauga Ojibwe, excuse me, descent. There were a few men named as her father, um, and the one that's kind of the most popular, the one that Edmonia really accepted as her father was a man named Samuel Lewis, who was of um, Afro-Haitian descent. So she was of mixed race. Um, she was both Black and Indigenous, and he worked in the New York area as a valet. By the time she was nine years old, however, both of her parents had passed away and she was sent to live with her mother's indigenous relatives in the Niagara Falls area. She was actually not known by her um, given name at the time, Edmonia. Her uh, aunts called her her Ojibwe name, which was Wildfire. And that is because she was very spirited. She was um, chaotic and wild and loved to run around and be free and get into all kinds of trouble. So they called her wildfire because she was like a little spitfire and she didn't really let anything stop her. She actually got kicked out of school. Um, she, her brother, she had an older half brother who was really adamant that she go and better herself with education. And he wanted to help her make a name for herself because he could see the potential in her. But she was not interested in that as a kid. She wanted to run around, be barefoot running through the forest and go fishing and didn't like to be tied down with having to go to school all day. Um, she did try to appease her brother and she went for three years to like a finishing type school um, called McGrawville, but uh, she was so wild in their opinion that they actually ended up kicking her out. 
Um, she was exposed to art at a young age. She mostly helped her aunts with basket making and weaving, which they would sell to artists um, or sell themselves at Niagara um, Falls. And so she did have some exposure, but it wasn't until she went to college at Oberlin, excuse me, that she really discovered her talent for sculpture. And she was very serious about studying art. This is kind of, you know, she, she kind of hit her maturity in her early teens to late teens and decided that, okay, this is what I want to do. I really think I have a talent for it, so I'm going to pursue it. Unfortunately, this was during the time around the Civil War. And as we all know, this was a very dark time for people of color in the United States, especially someone who was both um, of African-American, Afro-Haitian descent and indigenous um, descent. And when she was at Oberlin College in Ohio, which wasn't as bad as the Deep South, but, you know, there was still some very deep-seated racism there, she was jumped uh, one night walking home from class and nearly beaten to death. Unfortunately, the white administration dragged their heels on trying to find the perpetrators, and she was essentially um, kicked out of school. It's very upsetting, and it breaks my heart that she has this passion and this talent, and yet because of the color of her skin, she was not able to really participate. So she decided to um, still pursue her dream. She, we can guess by her nickname of Wildfire, that she was really determined and stubborn. And so she made a few portrait busts of um, abolitionist leaders and she sold them in order to finance a trip to Europe where she ended up remaining for the majority of the rest of her life. Rome um, was where she settled, not only because she could learn sculpture, but in her opinion, um, and in general historical sake, Rome was much more tolerant of people of color and there wasn't quite as much segregation. And she wrote in her notes, I'm going to read a quote here, a quote, I was practically driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art culture and to find a social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my color. The land of liberty has no room for a colored sculptor, end quote. So she did spend most of her life in Rome. Um, she also lived in Paris and London for a little bit. She did make occasional trips back to the United States um, as her fame grew because people wanted to commission pieces for her and it was um, easier to do the sculpture there because marble is so dang heavy. Um, but really she stayed in Rome for the rest of her life. She um, died on September 17th, 1907 when she was living in London and she is buried there in a Catholic ceremony. She was very, very devoutly Catholic in her uh, later years. She is an extraordinary sculptor, and I'll show you my favorite piece from her by a second. Um, but I think it's really cool to note that leading African-American studies scholar Molefe Kete Asante named her as one of the 100 greatest African-Americans in his list in 2002. And so it just goes to show how even though she has you know, been gone for a century and a half, she's still making this impact on you know, African-American history and art history as a whole. So this is my personal favorite sculpture by Edmonia Lewis, and honestly, like probably a top 10 favorite sculpture for me of all time. It is called The Death of Cleopatra, and it was sculpted in 1876, and it is made of marble. So this was actually a special commission um, that was given to Edmonia in 1876, because that's the 100th anniversary of signing the Declaration of Independence. There was a centennial exposition held in Philadelphia that year as a like huge nation celebration. And so they asked her as um, a famous sculptor, hey, can you create this piece for us? And she did. It's amazing how big it is. Like I haven't actually had the uh, opportunity to see in person, but according to the Smithsonian website where it lives today, it weighs over 3000 pounds. So just imagine how crazy big that is. So it shows Cleopatra in the moment of her death. Uh, for those of you who don't know, she committed suicide via a poisonous snake bite, according to tradition instead of being captured and paraded around by the Romans after the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE. Her body is clearly, you know, weak. She's dying. The poison is rushing through her veins. But look how regal she is. She still sits on her throne. Her back is still straight. Um, you know, she's still got her crown, the double crown on of ancient Egypt. And she is, you know, being portrayed as this, you know, beautiful martyr to her cause. And usually in art up until this point, Cleopatra is not shown as dead. Usually they show her in the moment where she decides, you know, this death is better than being captured by those nasty Romans, but instead she is already dying and on death's doorstep. This was shocking to Americans in uh, 1876. 
they thought it was super gruesome and super violent and they were they were a little shook but it still drew huge crowds because people saw the raw talent that lewis had she look at the way that the clothes uh, the cloth of her dress are just folded expertly. They drape around her body. We can see all the little details in the throne, her fingers, the, the look on her face. Like, it is really clear that Lewis knew what she was doing with a hammer and a chisel. Unfortunately, despite its, you know, popularity at the exposition, it all of a sudden, you know, disappeared afterwards because it wasn't sold. Um, and then it was shown in Chicago in 1878. Uh, a gambler ended up purchasing it a few years later. His name was Blind John Condon, and he used it as a, a grave marker, weirdly enough, for his favorite horse who happened to be named Cleopatra. It, the land um, where Cleopatra the horse was buried ended up being sold to the USPS, and the statue was taken off the ground so they could build a building for, you know, mail sorting, and then put into storage, and, and then people forgot about it. So about 100 years later, in the uh, 90s, the uh, Forest Hill Park Society, which had um, kind of bought the land when the USPS moved out, they were going through old storage units and came across this 3,000 pound marble sculpture. And like, huh, uh, this could be important. And they contacted the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian's researchers found out, oh my gosh, this is a lost Ammonia Lewis masterpiece, raised money, and they restored it to its former glory after it spent like 100 years in a dark, dirty storage unit. And now it is one of the centerpieces at the Smithsonian's American Art Museum. Um, I hope to see it someday. I think it's beautiful. And Moni Luce also has work um, in major museums around um, America and Europe, including the Met uh, in New York that has a few of her pieces. So if you're closer to that area, I highly recommend checking them out. And now we're gonna move on to our next artist. This is Augusta Savage, and she was also a sculptor. She lived and worked in New York City and um, was known as an educator as well. Oops, sorry about that. She um, was born in 1892 in Green Coast Springs, Florida. And funnily enough, she was born on Leap Day. You don't hear about many people born on Leap Day, but yeah, she was uh, February 29th. Her um, interest in sculpture was uh, from a young age because she clearly had a talent for art and um, her family was not encouraging though unfortunately her father was a minister and he thought that sculpture broke the second commandment um, which was against creating idols and so it was really difficult for her to get a start because she didn't have that family support but just like Edmonia Lewis she was stubborn she knew what she wanted to do with her life she knew it was her job to become a sculptor, uh, to become an artist and bring art into the world. So in 1919, she entered a prize uh, or entered to me a contest and won first prize for her art. So that kind of cemented in her brain that she was going to be an artist. So she packed up her bags and moved to New York City and enrolled at the Cooper Union, um, which was a scholarship based art school. She continued to work and she received good marks and good critiques of her pieces. And she won um, money also to travel to Paris and learn from artists there. Uh, she really became drawn to the idea of also teaching art because she didn't have that background where her family was supportive and she kind of had to make her own support system. So that drew Savage to creating the um, Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts after she got back from Paris. And this was in 1932. Some of her students, you may recognize their names, Jacob Lawrence, Gwendolyn Knight, Norman Lewis, and Kenneth B. Clark. The studio itself had a huge impact on the development of the Harlem Renaissance. Eventually, she um, called it the Harlem Community Art Center because of the Great Depression. You know, she wanted it to be a place for people to come, kind of get away from the, the woes of this horrible recession and, and use their creativity to kind of make the world feel a little bit more, you know, brighter and in control. More than 1,500 students passed through their doors. Like that's an astounding number for both the Great Depression and a small community art center um, in a big city. In fact, the first lady at the time, Eleanor Roosevelt, she attended the grand opening when they renamed it to show her support for the arts and for um, Black arts, especially because of the you know, terrible racism in our country. 
Um, Dr. Cook, who wrote for the New York Times, she described the space um, really well. And I, I'd like to read a quote to you because I think it sums it up. And she said, traditional black people have been excluded from academic learning space. But by creating her own space, not only does Savage create a strong sense of community, she afforded many students with opportunities that she never had in her own life. She brought the black identity into the art world. And I just find that so powerful because she literally did take, she did not have the support of her family. She um, kind of made her own space and she passed that legacy on through her students. And I think that's just beautiful, especially as an educator myself. Um, you know, I've taught high school and now I teach art history um, at a, um, both online and at my job. And I love creating a space for students to experience art. And it's powerful to feel like you're in a legacy. You know, Augusta Savage has the same ideas that I do. And it's just a good feeling that you can, we can all pass on this art to each other. Now, in 1934, she was the first African woman elected to the National Association of Women Painters and Sculptors. So again, she's breaking barriers. She's making a name for herself. Um, unfortunately, the Great Depression and then World War II, which followed directly, made it hard for her to make a living sculpting. And so in 1939, she took the opportunity to create a sculpture for the World's Fair. It was a um, big honor to be asked because, you know, it's it's the World's Fair. This is a ton of exposure that she should get for her school and for her, um, for her own artistic abilities. And so she created a sculpture, which will be our next one. I kind of accidentally clicked on it. Unfortunately for her, because of the events, you know, of the Great Depression, World War II, her job at her own community art center was given to someone else and they wouldn't take her back. Uh, so she moved to upstate New York to kind of get away from the city. And she lived a very quiet life. She illustrated children's books. She worked um, in um, kind of writing children's books, teaching local children. Her, none of her books were published, unfortunately. Her work was largely forgotten until about the last 20 years um, when scholars started looking at, you know, the foundations of the Harlem Renaissance and how it lasted multiple generations. Um, and Augusta Savage died in March of 1962. And today she's still, you know, we're bringing her back as, you know, a foundational person in, in the Black art movement. So this one is called Lift Every Voice and Sing. And this is the work that she created for the World's Fair um, in 1939. It is made of plaster um, because it was very hard to afford bronze, especially during the time that this was created. And so unfortunately, photographs are all we have. It was uh, basically destroyed after the World's Fair because no one could afford to cast it in, in bronze. Um, so this, is very representational of Savage, excuse me, Savage's style, where she focused a lot on the um, African-American history and um, kind of a classical style with African-American history woven into it. So it's called Lift Every Voice and Sing because it's named after the song uh, by James Weldon. The NAACP, that's not right, excuse me. The NAACP called it the Black National Anthem and it's a prayer of thanksgiving as well as a prayer for faithfulness and freedom. There are also references in the song to Exodus and freedom from enslavement. And so this was a very powerful piece for Savage to put at the World's Fair because she is bringing the cause of her people to the forefront. You know, it, it tells the history, it, it connects back to the song because as you can see, the people kind of stagger down and create a harp with this extended hand. It, it's absolutely stunning and it's, um, you know, I wish that it had survived. It was one of the top attractions of the fair, which just boggles my mind because it wasn't cast into bronze. Like this would have made such a, a great piece somewhere, you know, in some studio or some museum and people lined up for hours to get a glimpse at it. But yet it was, you know, basically just thrown in a, tr in a dumpster after the World's Fair was dismantled later that year. And so we only have these photographs um, to, to remind us of Savage's style and of her contributions to um, Black art and Black art history. Our next person on this list of five is Jacob Lawrence. And he lived in uh, from 1917 to 2000. He's primarily known for his paintings. He did a little bit of other art, but really it's his paintings that stand out. 
Um, he was born on September 7th, 1917 in New Jersey. He dropped out of school when he was 16 years old to help out his family by working, but he didn't give up on his pursuit of art. He understood the importance of uh, financial contribution, but he still was interested in pursuing an arts degree. He did um, make time around his job to attend local arts workshops in New York City. And some of these arts workshops were actually hosted by Augusta Savage at her school. And so she really saw his talent and, you know, she pulled him aside and said, you know, Jacob, I really think that you, you have what it takes to make it as an artist full time. And so she encouraged him and helped him to get a scholarship to the American Artist School. He was really excited to receive this scholarship because he could, he was encouraged by Savage's um, critiques and by her encouragements and um, really wanted to, to pursue art full time. Uh, in 1941, he married fellow artist and fellow Savage student, Gwendolyn Knight. They were married until his death. Uh, very sweet artistic love story there. His career did have to take a break for a little while because he um, enlisted in the Coast Guard during World War II. He wanted to fight for the country. And he was actually part of one of the first integrated crews in the Coast Guard. So not only was he making history with his art, but Lawrence was making history um, fighting in World War II. After the war, he returned to the United States and continued to pursue art full time. He called his style dynamic cubism. And he didn't mean cubism in the way that kind of general canon thinks of uh, cubism in that kind of Picasso style. Instead, his was more about the colors and the shapes influenced by the Harlem Renaissance. And so, you know, cubism, I, I think when he means that he means more about like this idea of using strong shapes in his work, as opposed to being influenced by, you know, French Cubism. Um, he was really passionate about Black history. I believe, you know, I'm sure he was interested in on himself, but I'm sure Savage helped him explore those themes as well because her art dealt with a lot of it um, in her own pieces, especially like the Lift Every Voice and Sing, which I just showed. He often painted in, in large series. And so instead of, you know, considering, okay, this painting is an individual work, this painting is an individual work, each painting was made to be seen as part of a larger collective. So he would pick a theme and then paint several works, sometimes up to 60, 70 paintings that were meant to re represent a single theme. And so his most famous one was the Migration Series, which I will talk about next. Um, but he also did a series on um, famous Black abolitionists, including Harriet Tubman um, and Frederick Douglass, you know, figures of history like John Brown. And so he... Um, was really interested in using this new Harlem Renaissance style to bring people's awareness to important moments in history. In total, he painted 319 works across his lifetime. In 1970, he and his wife actually moved to Seattle because he was offered a job as an art professor at the University of Washington. He taught there for 16 years. And um, I will admit, this is part of the reasons why I love Jacob Lawrence so much. I mean, I love his, his paintings and their style, but I went to the University of Washington. His legacy is still felt there, um, even though, you know, he um, stopped teaching there before I was even born. Um, but I just, I could feel his, how important he was to the Seattle arts community. Um, the gallery within the School of Art is named the Jacob Lawrence Gallery. It's affectionately known as the Jake. Um, and it's, it's an important part of student campus life because it gives uh, art students and local artists a place to display their work. And I, I love that his legacy is still being felt, you know, decades after his death. He um, passed away in June of 20, 2000 at the age of 82. And he basically painted up until the day he died. He was still creating, he was still passionate about his art. He's considered one of the most important Black artists of the 20th century by art historians. His works hang in museums all over the world, all over the United States, and there are even some that the White House purchased for its collection. And so that just speaks to his, his pioneering efforts and his, his grasp of style and history and how hard that he worked to, to bring, um, you know, people's attention to Black art. He and his wife also created a foundation um, named after themselves that help sponsor art programs and artists um, in the Black communities, and it, it's still running today. So that's, that's amazing, just the impact that he has had.
even all these years later. So this is the migration series panel one. This is a 60 panel series. Um, and you can view all of them on the website that I have linked in the chat. I actually linked it there, uh, a page from an exhibition that all of them are brought together. And so you can see all 60 panels and how, what parts of history they represent and what they, um, what Lawrence wrote along to go with it because he actually wrote small blurbs to go along with each of these paintings. Um, the entire series only took him about a year, which is pretty impressive because they're large panels and there are 60 of them, like I said. So he really worked hard. This is one of his most famous um, series. He saw the panels as a collective work, as I mentioned. So that's why they're telling the story of the Great Migration. This has um, happened um, in America, began after World War One and lasted in until around 1970, give or take, um, essentially African-American people from the southern parts of the United States moved north um, and west in order to find opportunities that were not being afforded to them because of the, the deep issues of, of segregation that the southern United States still had even you know decades after the Civil War ended. He also, the North had a lot of industries, and so there was a lot more job openings available, and you know, people had to make a living. So each panel, like I said, is accompanied by um, a one to two sentence descriptions. Uh, some of them have been updated um, in 1993. They just didn't use language that would be considered appropriate today. Um, and, you know, as language changes and evolves, we kind of understand when things are hurtful or discriminatory, but they were done, you know, with him as a part of it. So it, it wasn't like museums were just changing the intent of the art, like they, they was consulted and they kind of updated everything. This one is the very first panel in the series. And so it shows lots of people. Um, we've got families, we've got individuals, we've got children, and they're all making their way to big cities in um, the North and Midwest. So Chicago, New York, and St. Louis, looking for new opportunity and new um, life. Fascinatingly, Lawrence created his own pigments and continued mixing them so that the colors remain consistent across his works. He wanted them, like I said, to be one cohesive piece. So if you've got a slightly different shade of green across, you know, 60 panels, then that illusion of a single entity kind of breaks and he did not want that to happen. So he took the time to make all of his own pigments and mix them for cohesion purposes. The main themes of the entire series, obviously migration, but also the struggles that, you know, people went to you, they were uprooting their whole lives and perhaps even generations of living in the same area. And because they saw more opportunity, they had to make that difficult decision. You know, I, it'd be really hard for me to move away from home. And I, I can't put myself in their shoes because they're not just leaving for opportunity. They're leaving because opportunity is being taken away from them where they're living now. And he also across the panels, and you'll see this if you look at kind of all 60 together, is the idea of hope and that this is a horribly difficult decision to make for some people, but that promise of hope and a better life and, you know, a better life for the children in some cases, you know, we see some little ones in the front of the painting here, like that was a, an opportunity and the, that they couldn't pass up. Like they, they knew it was going to be hard, but there was that light at the end of the tunnel that maybe there's a better life out there. And it's just, it's so poignant and it's, and it, brings to light a lot of the, the social commentary issues of, of the United States. And I think it's incredibly powerful. And so do a lot of people. And that's why he's so famous. And I highly recommend checking all of them out because I just picked the first one because it's easy to talk about. You know, you can see exactly what's happening on the screen. But there are a lot of them that are just equally as powerful and equally as beautiful. So the fourth artist of today's talk is Faith Ringgold, and she's actually still alive. I, I, I mean, according to Wikipedia, um, she was born in 1930, and she was a multimedia, or she is a multimedia artist. So she does painting, a little sculpture, quilting, um, all kinds of stuff. She really ex explores different mediums as a way to tell her story. Um, she was born on October 8th, 1930 in Harlem. Her parents, uh, as a my interesting transition, her parents actually moved to Harlem from the South as a part of the Great Migration. They they knew there was a large African-American community up there and saw that a lot of art and culture was taking place because her mother was a fashion designer. And so her parents made the decision to move up there. And that's where they had their children. 
She grew up surrounded by a lot of the major players of the Harlem Renaissance and really exposed to that cultural explosion, which definitely informed her art later in life. Her parents really did um, encourage her creativity. Like I said, her mom was a fashion designer. Um, Ringgold was really interested in painting as a young child, and it wasn't until later she kind of began to explore other mediums. In 1950, she enrolled in City College of New York. She really wanted a liberal arts degree, but unfortunately, um, due to sexism, women weren't allowed to get the degree. So she had to enroll in arts education. She still worked on her art, um, but she actually did find an interest in education. She worked as an art educator off and on for many years. And um, so she did pick up a lot of skills, but it, it's disappointing that she couldn't pursue her, her number one goal because of being a woman. Over the next decade or so, she had two daughters, which she took all over the world with her as she explored the different artistic styles, especially in Europe. Um, and she was really inspired when she went to France. She has an entire collection called the French Collection, which was inspired by not only French culture, but museums, particularly the Louvre. She worked on a master's degree and created one of her most famous series about the civil rights movement called the American People series. Um, she made her way to the West Coast in the 80s. She moved there um, because she was offered a professorship at the University of California, San Diego. She taught there until 2002. And um, like I said, she worked as an art educator, you know, smaller art schools earlier in her life. And that experience really helped her get this, um, get this position as well as her own artistic creation. She's after retiring, she moved back to the East Coast. And um, as far as I know, she lives in New Jersey. According to her website, she still makes art regularly. And her work was heavily inspired by her childhood, her travels, and she inputs a lot of social commentary there. And so she talks about racism and sexism that she's experienced and that she knows other people have experienced and inputs that into her work. This is one of her most famous pieces. It's part of the French collection. She's really well known for her quilted squares. Like I said, she's mixed media, so she does a little bit of everything, but her quilted squares, her quilted pieces really have garnered a lot of attention. It was sculpted in, or excuse me, created in 1991 um, and was based on her travels to the Louvre. So this is uh, a really cool one because you can see the Leonardo da Vinci paintings that have been made in quilt. And I just find that so interesting, like that, that juxtaposition of mediums. And it, like, you can tell exactly what ones they were and to get that in quilting, I, I just think that's amazing. So the Virgin and Child with St. Anne, with the Mona Lisa and the uh, Virgin of the Rocks. And so like Jacob Lawrence, Ringgold uh, often put text to accompany her um, works. And so this one, Dancing in the Louvre says, Marsha and her three little girls took me dancing at the Louvre. I thought I was taking them to see the Mona Lisa. You'll never see anything like this. Well, the French hadn't either. Never mind Leonardo da Vinci and Mona Lisa. Marsha and her three girls were the show. So this was inspired by her trips in the 1960s. And um, the girl, the person talking in the perspective of, you know, I thought I was talking to, taking them to see the Mona Lisa is a young woman named Willa. So she's um, a young black woman that lives in Paris during the 1920s. And she meets all of these famous people um, that lived there at the time and kind of develops her own style and her own philosophy about, you know, art and business. And she becomes a successful artist and businesswoman at a time when that wasn't really an opportunity for, for women and especially a black woman. Um, I, I just love the joy that this painting, or excuse me, I keep saying that, this quilting square brings. You can see like the little girls are just having the time of their lives in front of these Da Vinci paintings. The mom is getting in on it. Willa is kind of like looking at it and not sure what to do, but she, she's still clearly enjoying herself. And I just love how, how different it is like if I think of the Louvre when I think of Leonardo da Vinci I think of people lining up and getting trying to get a spot and museums are you know are very stuffy academic places sometimes and these these little girls are dancing because they're so excited to be in the space and it, it brings that life and that joy back to the museum and it's about breaking the rules and having fun sometimes and um this juxtaposition also comes out in the medium itself uh, Ringgold was really interested in quilting as a part of the African-American tradition. As we know, a lot of um, slave women and the later free women used quilting as a form of expression. And so she learned it to help 
kind of connect herself with the past and then also keep it contemporary. So we have this, this contrast of this, you know, African-American quilting tradition with this European Renaissance painting tradition. And she's managed to meld the two in a single work in a way that makes sense and, and brings interest and creates conversation. And and I just think that's extremely fascinating. Um, and I, I love the whole series, but this one particular is, is my favorite just because it, it makes me smile. And I think that's a big part of art history is, does it, this work bring you joy? You know, you don't have to think it's the most cool, perfect thing in the world, but does it make you smile a little bit? And I love sharing that with people. The final artist of this talk today, um, you may be more familiar with him than the others. He's pretty contemporary. Um, Jean-Michel Basquiat, he was born on December 22nd, 1960 in Brooklyn. His father was from Haiti and his mother was of Puerto Rican descent. He was an insanely smart kid. By the age of four, he was speaking French, Spanish, and English fluently. He was reading way more advanced books than a four-year-old should read and understanding them. He was interested in art, science, literature. Like he, he was like the Albert Einstein, you know, of the 1960s. He loved art and his mom really saw that and wanted to encourage it. So he would be taken to museums by his mother as a young kid and signed him up for a little museum membership. So he'd go do activities with other kids and, and kind of learn about different artists and how to create art. Unfortunately, um, his mother was had a lot of um, psychiatric issues. She suffered from you know mental illness at a time when mental illness was not really understood and kind of hidden away. And so he, his father had his mother sent to psychiatric hospitals to try and get him, get her help and then kind of became an authoritarian at home. And um, Basquiat rebelled against this. You know, at 15, he ran away because he didn't want to be under the thumb of his father's authority. And, you know, just the, the chaos of, of losing his mother to the mental illness really, really affected him. And so he, he lived outside of the home with friends and um, in the 1970s, he started experimenting with graffiti art. He and a group of his friends, particularly a, a guy named Al Diaz, tagged under the name of Samo, S-A-M-O. And it was abbreviated joke, and pardon my, my swearing here, but they meant same old shit. And uh, so that's what they tagged it as. And it, it's funny to me because they're, you know, growing up in the 70s, but I could see some of the teenagers I taught last year when I worked at a high school using the same tag and for the same reason. So I, I love when little things transcend time like that. Um, a popular one that they would tag would be Samo as an alternative to God. They saw it kind of as a new religion of just like, you know, same shit, different day kind of thing. Um, they used a lot of irony and poetry in their graffiti. So it wasn't just images or words. It was images and words, which kind of set them apart at the time. Uh, a warehouse owner who had seen him tagging with his friends liked what he saw and thought, you know, this kid might might be onto something and offered him a job. Um, and that's really what launched his career, kind of helped him make those connections, bring about uh, his art on a larger stage than just the, the random streets in, in Brooklyn. Uh, he was able to use this job and these connections to launch a career for himself. So in June 1980, he participated in the Times Show Square, oops, excuse me, the Times Square Show, which was a multi-artist exhibition sponsored by a few big names like um, Collaborative Projects Incorporated and Fashion Moda. He sold his first work at this show and people were foaming at the mouth afterwards to get a piece of Basquiat's art. He was so famous so quickly. And by, you know, that year, his single work could sell for $20,000. $20,000 is a lot of money today. Think about it in 1980s money. Like, that's insane. And, you know, everybody wanted a piece. He was constantly creating, constantly coming up with new themes. Um, he did a lot of social commentary, irony, poetry, bringing in Black culture, and melding all of that into these neo-expressionist, um, how he describes himself, works that, you know, had everybody really interested in what he had to do. He was friends with some of the biggest names um, of, you know, 20th century art, Andy Warhol, for example, this portrait of him on the screen is a photograph taken by none other than Warhol himself. Sadly, um, this lifestyle led him to being exposed to drugs and he died at age only 27 in 1988 from a heroin overdose. Um, 
he it was devastating to the art world to say the least because he was so young had so much potential and he had just gotten caught up in some of the darker aspects of the fast-paced lifestyle and Keith Haring another artist wrote his obituary for Vogue and it, it was very beautiful and it, it really struck me so I wanted to share it with you and he said he truly created a lifetime of work in only 10 years. Greedily, we wonder what else he might have created, what masterpieces we would have been cheated out of by his death. But the fact is that he created enough work to intrigue generations to come. Only now will people begin to understand the magnitude of his contribution. And I I just was so struck by that quote because, you know, only 10 years and he created this huge volume of work that brought so much light and an understanding to, you know, his culture. And it, it is devastating to see, you know, think about what he else he could have done had he not been taken so soon. And um, an art critic named um, Franklin Simrans analyzed his work and how he, he mixed so many different things, poetry, drawing, painting, text and image. You know, there was some abstraction, there were some more idealized figures, there were some more naturalized figures and his social commentary of, of bringing in history and showing how history is still happening now, he he just he brought in so many different elements to his art. It's so complicated when you look at it, but then you really get to understand how his mind worked and how he was constantly thinking about how to bring awareness in this new style of the 20th century. You know, I really wish we could have seen what else he could have done because I find him extremely fascinating. So this work um, is called Bird on Money, and it was painted in 1981. Uh, and it was a tribute to one of his idols, who was a jazz musician named Charles Parker. And Parker's um, nickname was Yardbird, so that's why we, we have a bird um, on the screen. And um, you know, it really goes along with all of his, his themes of you know, race, poverty, inequality, history, and how they all combine to kind of create a, um, a larger piece for people to discuss. It's really kind of a sad work. And all these little squiggles and peace signs and nines, that was him showing uh, Charles Parker, Yardbird, as a jazz musician. He was, he was thinking about jazz music and then drawing what he saw when jazz notes came to his mind. And so it's a tribute to that kind of chaos, staccato, richness of, of jazz music and its contribution to black history. Um, right here on the bottom, um, kind of a little bit of the bottom right hand corner where it says paramorir, that means to die. And right across from it on the other side of the bird's legs, we see the word Greenwood. Now this was the name of a cemetery in Brooklyn that, that Basquiat um, saw a lot growing up and it's where he would later be buried you know only seven years later so it, it kind of has that little creepy undertone as well that like he would later be buried in this paint where his painting talked about death um, was and it's just this kind of chaotic scene showing you know jazz and death and the cycle of of the human experience and um, he used so many different mediums it's crayons and acrylic on canvas so you know you paint it a little bit he scribbled a little bit and and I love the chaos of it because I can I can picture him in my mind creating this work and just listening to, to Charles Parker's music and drawing what his brain was seeing as the music happened and thinking about life and death and all of the the ideas that surround that in in various cultures in the United States and so it is a a poignant work and uh, I think it's really representational uh, of his style. So these are the five um, my favorite five Black artists that I think really bring um, different perspectives to, to their experience and trying to light on what we can see um, them doing and how they worked all, you know, across the centuries. Uh, for Black History Month, I think it's important that we highlight uh, everything that they did and everything that they brought to American art history and, you know, Western art history in general. Uh, if you liked this course, I am teaching an Art of Italy course um, this coming spring quarter. I've linked it in the website uh, that's in the chat uh, because you attended a lecture and therefore are considered a subscriber. I'm actually doing a community partnership. So it is an eight-week course and will be $75. So if you have any questions, you can let me know. But wanted to plug that in case you enjoyed my lecture today. Thank you so much um, for joining. I really appreciate it. I, I love talking about our street. And I love sharing my passion with other people. 
Um, I will do one every month. And so I haven't decided on next month's topic yet. Uh, so if you have one, shoot me an email. I would love to put it on the list to talk about. And um, are there any questions? Is anybody curious about a particular element or would like to, to know something? If you think of something later, please feel free to email me. My email is um, on the website and um, everything. So I'm, I'm happy to answer questions later as well. But are there any questions? All right, well, we wrapped up a little bit early because I always like to leave a little buffer zone for, for questions. Um, but I'm really glad you attended. Thank you so much for going through um, Black Art History with me today. And I look forward to seeing you next month, uh, whatever I end up talking about. Have a good rest of your day, everyone.